The real question, if you're really looking to lead an extraordinary life, is is that belief serving you or not? Plug into the minds of the world's cutting-edge innovators, visionaries, and thought leaders, rewriting the rules of high performance at work. It's your time to make an impact. I am your host, Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Valley podcast. Everybody, welcome back to another episode of Superhumans at Work. I have a guest today who has a background in legal, consulting, and education, and he is the author of the latest book called Master Your Code, The Art, Wisdom, and Science of Leading an Extraordinary Life. And what we want to do today is really go into these principles of how do you show up in the workplace to really bring your best, to be a high performer, and to really do what most people might not be aware are the things that hold themselves back, but you can choose to excel and do amazingly by following the principles of our guest, Darren Gold, who is joining us today. Darren, thank you so much for being here. Jason, thanks so much for having me. It's a real privilege and pleasure. And I wanted to kick it right off a bit with your story here because you've had a background in consulting, legal, and obviously worked as a CEO within education companies. I'd like to walk through that path and see how did you find yourself now coaching these leaders, these executives, really on being in the best version of themselves? Yeah, I'll take you maybe a minute or two through my personal background because I think it's really important to understand in terms of how it shaped me. Of course, it's the same with everyone, but I was born into a pretty unconventional and dysfunctional family. I write about this in my book. My father literally took to the streets, dropping out of school at a very early age and took to a life of crime. He was basically a street hustler. And that was the family situation that I found myself in as a little boy in London, England. And so I moved from London, England to the San Fernando Valley, grew up with my dad in a one bedroom apartment, was exposed to a lot of unconventional things, a lot of violence and crime, thankfully none of them towards me. Both of my parents spent intermittent times in jail. There was drug and alcohol abuse in my family, quite a bit of it. And the important part of that was that I had one constant, which was the unconditional love and support and guidance that my father provided me. And I felt very safe and protected in that. And out of that experience, I had this part of my program that was written. I talk about program in my book, which was the importance of education and the importance of financial security because it was driven out of a desire and an obsession to not live the life that I had been leading and living. And when I had the chance to have my own family to provide them with a very different life. So that was very much sort of a formative experience for me. It has shaped who I have become and then we can get more into that. But that led me to a very traditional path of getting ahead. It was the first in my family to go to college. I went straight from UCLA to University of Michigan to go to law school. It was For me, I'm gonna be a doctor or a lawyer, that's all I knew. And I spent a brief stint practicing law, and then I moved to McKinsey, the consulting firm, spent a number of years there, went into private equity, was on the boards of a number of companies, and that landed me in a interesting position where I transitioned into a CEO role. And I had the opportunity to be the CEO of two education companies, which finally led me to where I am today and have spent the last number of years working with CEOs and their leadership teams and helping them try to answer this big question of like, how do I design and build a really extraordinary organization where human beings flourish? And so I'm excited to be talking about that with you. And I love your story because a lot of people often find themselves going into these 
excuses or looking at their background and really finding that it holds them back from reaching ultimate potential. And in your case, thank you for sharing the fact that, you know, it didn't come from abundance. You came from very different backgrounds that most people would see when someone goes and gets to get his law degree and gets to be in these positions and do the incredible work that you do now. But it almost seems like in your case, you've chosen a different reality, even in spite of this background. And I think that's where we really kick it off with the code. So can we get more into that? What is that mindset shift that allowed you to kind of leapfrog? Yeah, let me offer you and your listeners a distinction, which I start with in the book, which is this distinction between a program and a code. And what I assert is that everybody has a program, a set of safety-based subconscious beliefs, values, and rules that really drive our behavior and limit our potential. And I draw this distinction between a code, which is a consciously chosen set of beliefs, values, and rules that is purposefully designed to serve you and produce extraordinary results. And that, I believe, is the big choice that we can make as human beings. And oftentimes, we don't realize we have that choice. I didn't for a long time. You know, I was sort of on autopilot, driven by this intense need to get ahead and to achieve. And in many ways, that sort of program served me. In many ways, it really limited me. It's this moment that happens in somebody's life, and it happened to me just before I was 40, where even though I had achieved some personal and professional success, I forced myself, given my circumstances, to really take myself on and say, what life am I living? How do I want to show up in the world? How do I see myself and others in the world? And how can I do it in a way that's going to really produce extraordinary results, really lead to an extraordinary life? And it was that conscious moment of awareness and choice to begin to rewrite my program and author a new code that really transformed the work that I do, the husband I am, the father I am. And it's sort of the basis for the book that I've written because I think everybody has the potential to make that choice. Very few of us know that we have it. And very few, even if we know what we have it, know what to do with it. I love how you presented that, and I've never heard it be presented that way before. So a program is something that is unconsciously operating, and a code is your conscious choice of how you choose to operate. Exactly. Now, with that awareness, I might be hearing this, and I'm thinking like, okay, like what are some of the typical programs that run in the workplace that actually might be sabotaging you, and you're not even aware of it? Yeah. I think the important part is in that definition, safety-based, right? So much of our program, if not all of it, is designed to keep us safe, psychologically and physical. The physical part for most of us in the Western world has been taken care of, thankfully, not all of us. So we have this program that's designed primarily to keep us psychologically safe, to keep our ego safe, to be included, to be accepted, to be right, to be in control, to succeed. And we come into work environments, complex work environments, right, where you've got lots of people with different programs and everybody's running around with a subconscious program designed to keep themselves safe, and it can come into conflict with the programs of others. And so that awareness of like, wait a second, I'll share you an example. I developed a part of my program when I was eight years old. I came from London, England to the US, and having an English accent at age 18 is pretty cool. Having an English accent at age eight is not at all. And I was teased mercilessly, and so, in that moment, and I talk about these things called survival strategies, my survival strategy as an eight-year-old boy was do everything I can to be likable. And I got so good at being likable, it became my kind of superpower. And it really served me. I had really great personal and professional success, but I found early in my career began to really limit me. It was really difficult for me to have really direct, honest, 
conversations with work colleagues. Paradoxically, I became so likable that it was hard for people to give me constructive feedback. So I robbed myself of my own growth. And so you can see these strategies that we adopt as young children that really serve us and we take them into the workplace as adults. And while they may serve us in some areas, really can limit our effectiveness. And so there's a part of rewriting that program that's the unlock for people in the workplace or in life in general. Wow, you really spoke on something that I'm listening to you and I'm like, oh my God, I think I'm having this program running myself. And another thing you mentioned is how all these things are related to safety. And I know for myself, being likable, huge thing that I'm constantly working on because I'd love to shift it into a code that serves better. But I also have this need, this safety need, which is I love being in control of everything. When I'm likable, I know what to expect as an outcome. And it's so comfortable. Yeah, it's incredibly comfortable and it's really served you. So why would you mess with something that served you so well, right? And this is where we get stuck, where we get by in life or we even do pretty well in life, but we don't get to that point where we can unequivocally say, I'm leading and living an extraordinary life. And to do that requires taking on the very parts of us that have been so successful and not letting them go. The real distinction I wanna offer, I think it's an important one, is not to demonize or diminish or to move from to something else. Whenever you hear the from to, it's perfectly designed to induce resistance to change. This is about expanding. I can still be likable, and I am, but I don't have to be so obsessively conditioned by it, right? I can be in choice and say, at times I'm gonna go out on a limb and risk that likability in service of others, in service of myself, in service of the organization that I represent, and by the way, when I do that, I tend to be actually more likable, but I'm not driven by it, right? I'm in charge of how I act, not the other way around. And that is a liberating, kind of empowering place to be. Wow, that's really interesting to hear because, yeah, I can see how I've come, especially when you talk about areas where you have conflict and then you basically default to the program you're not even aware of that is to be likable and then you don't speak your word and then you sit in resentment and then you're like oh you know i didn't get really what i want matter of fact i didn't even express what i want because it would be in conflict with the safety of being likable and what you're saying is you really need to kind of shift to a code that serves more is there a way to phrase this better code that could serve people that are listening and having kind of that similar issue because i'd assume it's a big one it is yeah well let's just take this idea of survival strategies and by the way there are three types there's the belonging survival strategies which you and i seem to have right which is the need to be accepted included liked there is distancing which a lot of people have and everybody has a little bit of everyone but usually people have a primary one which is the need to be right the need to be above it all. And then there's the controlling, and then I have a bit of this as well, the need to be in control, the need to be perfect, the need to succeed and achieve, and variants of those. And so the key is to identify, it all starts with awareness. We all hear about self-awareness and the importance, but in this concept, it's like, okay, which is my primary survival strategy? Importantly, how has it served me? And where did it come from is a really interesting question, but we don't need to get bogged down there, but oftentimes you can trace it back to some pivotal moments, and I did that and I shared that. How has it really served me, right? Because you want to honor it. It's an important part of who you are. But where is it limiting my effectiveness? And what would it look like if, not that I got rid of it, but I began to expand it and said, look, I've got choice here, right? I'm the master of my mind, not a prisoner of it. And if I'm in choice, then 
that's the part of the code that says, I'm going to direct how I interpret my circumstances, not have it be sort of automatically rendered for me by this subconscious program. And that's the whole idea. Wow. And I know in the book, you mentioned that one of the benefits you get from it is the fact that you have to let go of grudges and forgive unconditionally. It sounds like what you're speaking about right now is how do you actually even apply those ideas to yourself? Because I think of the past times that I haven't act in integrity because I had a better meaning of belonging that was in the way. And I prioritized that over integrity and I hold emotions with that. And so how important is it to do this activity of forgiving unconditionally for yourself as opposed to doing it for the others around you? Yeah, really important. And they're all interrelated, right? So if you become a master of your past, you begin to understand and have compassion for yourself. I was 40 years old when I realized I was living life based on a program written by a seven-year-old boy. And like, how much compassion can I have for myself? A lot when I came to that realization. And I began to have a tremendous amount of compassion for others. You know, the people that I love the most in my life that I've been annoyed by or frustrated by, I begin to see them as very different. And so this understanding of how much we're shaped by our past, and by the way, I never let people or myself off the hook, right? It's not about being restrained or constrained by your past, but understanding it, being a real student of your past is the key to becoming compassionate with yourself and forgiving yourself. And that's one of the key secrets to freedom and to moving beyond this sort of childhood program. And then when it comes to the people around you, like how is it that some people actually keep these grudges and don't forgive the people around them, especially in the workplace? I've mentioned the fact that there are times where I didn't act in integrity, I didn't speak my mind, and I had resentment that came from either a decision that was made, yet I didn't even put my own meaning into the pot because I held back. And so now I'm trying to have more acceptance. I want to be more forgiving of these people. What are the traditional steps and how does that usually play out in the workplace? The real question I always ask is what belief better serves you, right? Oftentimes people ask what belief is true. Now it may be very true that you were wronged, but the real question, if you're really looking to lead an extraordinary life is, is that belief, that grudge, holding on to resentment and blame serving you or not? And the answer is always no. Now, I write about a long-held grudge against my mother. You know, I had this narrative of a boy abandoned by his mother, and there was certainly some truth to that. But I realized how little that narrative was serving me. And the letting go of that grudge and the unconditional forgiveness of a woman who did the very best she could with what she had and who she was at the time was one of the most powerful liberating moments I've ever had. And all that's left in its place is love, love, understanding, and compassion. And so that can happen at a big scale like that for a boy who had that sort of you know, estrangement with his mother for a long time or you know, simple squabble in the workplace where you're like, wait a second, what am I doing holding on to resentment? What if I sought to understand and it doesn't mean I'm not holding people accountable. I want people to understand that paradox. I can hold people accountable and be very compassionate and understanding. Those two things can coexist. We often see them as sort of mutually exclusive. But how powerful and effective and free would I be in my leadership, in my organization, if I were able to do both of those at the same time? It's that sort of complexity of thinking that's symptomatic of somebody who's mastering himself or herself somebody who is driven by a program and not even conscious of it is going to fall into the trap of blaming and holding grudges. And I really 
can empathize with that, it's just not going to lead to the kind of results you want. It's like radical responsibility for your life that you're preaching for. And for somebody listening to this maybe early on in their career, I think this is really a good tip to take into consideration is that anything you're not satisfied with, you can usually take responsibility, which gives you the power to kind of rewrite that program into a code. And in your case, you're actually working with CEOs, you're working with executive teams. What are the typical areas that you have to work with people at such senior levels where most would think like, oh yeah, they're probably, they probably dealt with those things. That's why they're up there. Yeah. They've got it all figured out. It couldn't be farther from the truth. Even CEOs at very well-known organizations that have achieved a lot of success in their career, many of them have not taken on themselves in the way that we're talking about and come to a conclusion and a realization that this sort of idea of self-mastery is going to be the key for them to get to the next level. So oftentimes it's dealing with the same things at a different scale. Because what I hear over and over is the word overwhelmed. You know, when I ask people, how are you? They may not say it directly, but what they're speaking to is overwhelmed. And what they're speaking to is a set of conditions in their environment that are becoming increasingly complex and uncertain and volatile, and their way of thinking and making sense of their environment isn't keeping pace with that complexity. And so really what we're talking about, whether it's somebody early on in their career or at the height of their career, is how do I increase the complexity of my thinking to match or exceed the complexity in my environment? And you can imagine CEO of large global company with thousands of employees, with the kinds of issues and interdependencies that they're struggling with, need that kind of self-mastery as much, if not more than, than somebody, you know, earlier on in their career. I love it. And so, you know, I listen to this and I absolutely adore how you can get from that, you know, unconscious program to get to a code, find the ones that really serve. I'd love to kind of see if there's a list of these codes that you find in the ones that allow people to thrive the most in the workplace. Are there key ones? Like it seems around integrity. We talk about responsibility. Where else does this lead? And by the way, the book is organized in that way. I argue that there are essentially 10 lines of code that matter the most. And so we talked about a few of them. One I would add to the mix, at least one, is this idea of identity. And in chapter seven, I argue that everyone has an identity, a set of subconscious beliefs about themselves. And these beliefs we get throughout life and they aggregate and they form this identity. And I ask people, what's your identity? They look at me like I've got two heads. Like it's not a normal question that people are asked. And yet, one of the most powerful drivers of human behavior is the desire to be consistent with your identity. And so if you don't know what your identity is, you better figure it out because you are acting completely consistent with that identity. And if you want to change the results you're getting in work, in life, reconstructing your identity is the key because every single belief is made up. Most of the beliefs we have are there to protect us, not for us to thrive. And if they're made up, we can reconstruct them. And the same thing applies to identity. It's work that I've done on myself for a long time. I have an identity statement that I say every single day, multiple times a day. It's wired into me. It's who I am. And it's a big reason for the kind of success that I have and joy and fulfillment I have in life. And a lot of the work that I do with leaders is about reconstructing a powerful identity such that the actions they take naturally flow out of that identity. And that's an important part of the code that I'm inviting people to write. I totally relate to this because I've had a moment where I had a 
I guess it was a slow burning crisis because I found that my identity was tied to my role that I would do with the workplace, or I would easily attach to identities that were being marketed to me, such as I'm a Spartan. That's why I do Spartan races. Then I would be like, I'm a Mind Valley host. Then like, oh my God, if, if I would happen to not work for Mind Valley, Jason wouldn't exist. And I actually had to take some time apart to kind of rewrite what is a statement for my own purpose, my own vision, so that it would be independent of what I'm doing, but more of a statement of what I'm being. <laughs> yeah, that's great. You know, I had a uh, similar, slightly different experience where before writing this book, I discovered I had an identity that I'm not an author. Now, somebody that holds an identity of I'm not an author will talk a lot about writing a book, but won't get around to writing it. And it wasn't until I discovered that and took it on and said, I'm absolutely an author, well before I'd even published a book, that I was even able to sit down and start writing, right? And so this idea powerfully, like, I'm an author, I have some gift to offer to the world even though that was a stretch for me, if I believe it with certainty, the actions I take are going to be a natural manifestation of that identity. And out of that was born this book. It doesn't mean like wishful thinking. We can say, hey, I'm going to you know, go to the moon next year. But it's about powerfully declaring that which is really important to you, that which you're passionate about, and owning it as part of who you are and practicing it. You can't just sort of think it sort of, hey, maybe I'm an author. Really wiring it into your subconscious so that you act out of it. And that's something for listeners who are in the beginning of your career, like what is it that you wanna be and stand for in the world? It will change, but own it and really pay attention to it. Glad you mentioned the fact that it can change. And it's funny because I had the exact same thing happen to me because I've always had that list that I would write a book at some point, but it wasn't until I had somebody drill into me and said like, you need to embrace the fact that you are an author, put that as your identity, and now it's finally getting progress where I'll have that book out by the end of this year. So I'm glad that it worked for you. I feel like I'm on the right path. <laughs> That's fantastic. Also, I realized that you can use these identities and as they're not something that actually remain with you for the rest of your life, they can change. You can use them based on an outcome that you want to produce to make sure that your behaviors and your actions are congruent with that identity. That's right. And they can change and they will. And this identity statement that I really encourage people to adopt as a part of a kind of a daily ritual you'll see you tweak over time and you'll make changes to it because you're listening to it. You're really not just saying it unconsciously, you're really paying attention to it and it will and should change. Got it. And what I wanted to do in closing here is kind of talk about how I know in my life, most of the times that I've had big changes happen where I've actually not realized that I had this program running, the catalyst that made me translate it into a code was kind of a very painful event, whether it was a breakup, a career change, or something that really caused a lot of pain to make me realize like, oh my God, I'm on autopilot. I'm doing wrong things. I wasn't even aware of it. Now I need to translate this unconscious program, make it a code. And so for somebody listening to this, who's kind of like, okay, I get this. How do I make it so that I take action on identifying these programs? Maybe there's a list of programs I should be kind of auditing on myself before I get to the pain or is the pain necessary? Yeah, let's hope the pain isn't necessary. Oftentimes people will, and I did myself, came to what Warren Bennis, the leadership expert, calls a crucible event in your life that really catalyzes you to take a hard look at yourself. And if you're listening to this podcast, you're already way ahead of people that need a crucible event. You're availing yourself of thousands of years of wisdom because it's all out there, right? It's your responsibility. It's our responsibility to avail ourselves of this rich body of wisdom and accelerate the path of personal development and transformation ahead of those crucible moments. And sometimes it takes one. But I would say, no, absolutely, 
You're already doing it by listening to shows like this. You're already doing it by reading books that you know, are offering life lessons to you. And I would just say, continue to avail yourself of that. You're definitely on the right path, but it is a path of mastery, which never ends because it's not something you sort of do and figure out. It's a path you commit to as a lifelong endeavor, like anything worthwhile. Love it. Darren, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom here. And for everybody listening, I hope you're as mind blown as I am. I love these ideas. We really talked about how you got to take these subconscious programs that are running and you don't even know, and you can translate them into something with such more power, which is a code, a code that you choose that serves you and understand that you have to have understanding for yourself and forgiveness for yourself that most of these programs were put into place in your childhood moments typically. So if you explore those moments where you might've had a need of needing to belong or not feeling like you belong, needing to feel like, or possibly it was a need for control, possibly it was needing to be right. You can see that these things might come into the way of how you should be behaving so that you can actually excel in your career, which if you want to bring out that excellence, these new codes that are being suggested, we talked about letting go of the grudges, living with integrity, having that as a primary belief. We talked about taking responsibility, not doing any blame for anything that's holding you back, but really taking charge of your life. I particularly love this idea where we talked about when you choose these identities, it really allows for all your behaviors to align themselves to that identity. So by listening to this, if you can take one radical action right now is think of a conscious identity that you want that would serve you in the workplace. Maybe it's that I always show up on time. Maybe it's I'm someone who always does more than others to really accomplish something great. Don't feel attached to this identity. Just build a statement around it. Let it serve you for the moments that you serve you as a code that can take you further than anything that's a program that you're operating unconsciously. This has been an amazing session. Darren Gold, thank you so much for being here. If you like these ideas and you want to dig deeper, pick up Master the Code. We'll be putting a link in the show notes. And Darren, all the best. Thank you so much for sharing these ideas. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it. Hey, everybody. That was an interview with Darren Gold, the author of the book, Master Your Code. Definitely pick up this book if you resonate with these ideas. I know I absolutely love his way of looking at the world, giving yourself control, taking that responsibility, because truly, as you listen to this podcast and you pick up more literature, it's all about being at your best self. And as you become extraordinary, you're always getting yourself more educated, learning new ideas, and really taking all these programs that operate subconsciously, making them into codes that serve you and drive you. If you've enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe, share with friends, and please leave us a review, especially making reference to this episode if it particularly spoke to you as we bring more guests and bring these podcasts completely commercial-free to turn you into a superhuman. This has been Jason Campbell. Thank you so much for your time, and until next time. My name is Jason Campbell, and this is Superhumans at Work, a Mind Valley podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.